morning and welcome to Rising. We are midway through the week. Hope you're just as excited about that as me and Brianna are. <laughs> we're, we're getting through it, you I know, guess. For, for us, Robbie, I almost feel like that's stolen value, uh, valor for working people because we don't work on Fridays. So that's truly, right. we're, we're in the home stretch. That's right. The other team, <laughs> the other team comes aboard for Fridays. So, yeah. uh, although it's going to be a late night because there's a debate, got to watch true. that. that got to go to some holiday parties in between. <laughs> Woe is me, the, the life of a DC political commentator. There's just too much frivolity to be had. Laboring in the information uh, minds, are we? Yes, indeed. Well, what are we talking about? All right. Well, President Biden made a pretty stunning admission yesterday that he wouldn't be running for a second term in office if it weren't for Donald Trump's bid for the presidency. Per Biden, the country is, quote, more at risk in 2024, and we, quote, cannot let him win. Meanwhile, new 2024 general election Redfield Wilton polls find President Biden trailing behind Trump in five battleground states, including some by 10 points. And Trump isn't the president's only competition. Biden is currently facing a walloping when paired up against GOP second and third placers currently, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, trailing by 10 and 5 points, respectively. Haley raised over $500,000 during a fundraiser with over 100 Wall Street executives this Monday, where she painted herself to be the sane Trump alternative. And you can't argue with those numbers, all of them bad for Biden. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it remains interesting that the other GOP candidates who at this point have very low odds of overtaking Trump, unless something dramatic happens with his legal situation, which is possible. Sure. But the polls show them decisively beating Biden. They show Trump also likely to beat Biden, but it's going to be closer. So, you know, those those. Uh, battleground states, the swing states, polling there, so bad for the president. I was actually on the radio yesterday uh, with a, a kind of conservative news commentator and uh, who watches the show and asked me, you know, based on my conversations with you mm -hmm. and the knowledge I have of people, uh, young people on the left and how frustrated they are with Biden, he said, do you think, you know, they're obviously they're really mad at Biden right now. Are they going to, you know, are they going to come back into the fold sure. by the time ele the election rolls around? And I said, you can imagine that being true for a lot of different voters, a lot of different interest groups. This is the group least likely to come back to the fold, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, young voters already struggle to get to the polls. Yeah. So those who have enough incentive to say, hey, I voted, I'm a voter, and I'm still not coming out, you have to rely on turning out people who ordinarily are some of the toughest people to get to come to the polls. That's a tough look for Democrats. Moreover, and again, this isn't every disaffected voter, as we talked about yesterday, but there is this um, category of disaffected voter that is specifically disaffected over what they see as, as one of the, the most grievous humanitarian crises, crises they've seen in their lifetime that specifically affects their community. And I'm talking about Arab voters who happen to be concentrated in one of the most important states for Democrats to win in 2024. Michigan. That is Michigan. My so, home state. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just a really tough look for Joe Biden especially because they're saying specifically now in this moment, I know you think we're going to come back into the fold. I know you think you can use, you know, abortion or whatever other issue, which is genuinely important as a stick. I know that all of these liberal pundits are screaming, but what about a Muslim ban? Don't you know what will happen if Trump will get back into office? And they're saying, I'm clear right about all of that. And I said what I said. I am not voting for Joe Biden. This is my line in the sand. I said it like that song. <laughs> 
I thought you would like that. <laughs> I love that. I know song. you love Doja Cat, I person do. of the year, along with Taylor Swift right now. Yes, yes. Uh, we should. <laughs> I, I, I made this joke to Brianna earlier. She's going to have to hear it again, and she's going to have to hear it every year as long as we're doing the show. It's Taylor Swift's second victory because in 2006 we were all Times Person of the Year. Oh boy. Oh. Okay. Uh, let's uh, let's comment on what we what we actually opened the segment with. Sure. Biden's uh, admission there mm -hmm. that he is only running because Donald Trump is still running again. It's so important to beat Trump that we need Biden. That's kind of funny for a lot of reasons, because at this point, polls are almost suggesting that Biden is the person with the least chance Correct. of defeating Trump. So if we must defeat Trump no matter what, it no longer follows necessarily from reading the polls Correct. that Biden is the guy to do that job. Correct. Whether it's the overwhelming majority of Democrats that didn't want him to be a candidate, um, whether it's all of the youth voter polls that we've seen, whether it is the polls that show that his age and perceived cognitive decline are really motivating uh, voters, whether it's the polls that show not only would a generic Democrat do better than Joe Biden in this race, but Kamala Harris, who has never been a popularity queen, would do better in this race. I mean, this is exactly the pitch that people like uh, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson are making from within the Democratic Party. I mean, I said this yesterday, but the Pod Save America crew, which I think is a good kind of barometer for how liberals are thinking in this moment, they were pressing him on Positive America earlier this week, saying, well, aren't you just Biden but younger? Why You can't really distinguish yourself from Biden. Why are you running? That is the whole point. <laughs> America wants Biden but younger. You know. Yeah. They voted for him last time. Yes. They elected Biden but younger in, in uh, 2020. Right. So it, it's frankly a kind of negligence that I'm sorry we also saw Back in 2016, I feel like I'm getting yes. flashbacks. There were polls that suggested that despite Trump being a historically unpopular candidate, Hillary Clinton was too. And for the duration of that campaign, despite all of these wild news stories about Donald Trump, Donald Trump being a very much an unproven qual uh, quality, um, you know, people having really serious concerns and not having quite the stranglehold in the Republican Party yet, that he, then as compared to what he does now. The Democratic Party refused to acknowledge that the more electable candidate might be Bernie Sanders, despite polls showing that he had a 10 percent lead on Donald Trump as compared to Hillary Clinton's lead, which was for the, for the bulk of the campaign within the margin of error. For sure. Um, yeah. I, I, and and the, the 2016 race was was close the whole time. There yep. were alarm bells, sirens going off, showing that Hillary Clinton is very vulnerable to this man. To, to Donald Trump yes. the whole time. People act like it was this great upset, like it was uh, unthinkable. No. <laughs> well, that was their punditry. The pundit right. class wasn't ready for it. The polls showed all along it was that close. this was that this was close. Yeah. And, and and it was and that was the same case in in 2020. It was close all the way along. You know, we're talking about thousands of votes across a couple states. Yes. That if those flip, if if. Michigan goes a different way and Pennsylvania goes a different way. That's the ball game in 2016. In 2020, it was going to take um, uh, Arizona and uh, and Georgia. And we're, you know we're, we're talking about five states, one with a heavy mu mu Muslim pop mm -hmm. population, mm -hmm. um, states with moderate, independent swing voter voters who could vote for Democrat, could vote for Republican, could vote for a third party candidate. Mm -hmm. We're seeing uh, you know RFK Jr. with unbelievable third party numbers. I, I mean they're believable because he's a popular right. figure, he's done well, but it's far higher. Rare, yeah. yeah, rare since uh, since with the early 90s, mm -hmm. since the uh, Perot days. Mm -hmm. So so this is going to be an interesting dynamic, an interesting race where really anyone could win and Biden looks just just weaker than ever. Now, yeah. you can say that when push comes to shove, he won in 2020, he won in 22. At the actual ballot, when ballots are cast, mm -hmm. Biden has some kind of effect 
that uh, that that translates to 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 a to, to a boon to him doing better, his yeah. party doing better than you would otherwise expect. But, I, I really I expected them to get killed in yeah. 2022, and they did better than they, I thought. That, that is true. But again, there's this question about whether or not abortion on the ballot is going to be enough. Uh, to help uh, Joe Biden overcome, sure. especially when, again, the national polls and whatever happens in a discrete state where abortion on the ballot are different things from what we're looking at when we're looking at him falling so far behind in these swing states in particular, where not just Muslim voters are concentrated, but remember, part of Hillary's problem was losing a great deal of the black vote, the Democrats losing a great deal of the black vote between 2012 and 2016 in the state of Wisconsin. 88,000 black voters that voted in 2012 did not come out for Hillary Clinton in 2016, in part because of her lack of campaigning, but in part because perceptions about her relationship with the black community. And there are also a lot of black voters who are very solidaristic with what's going on in Palestine that see echoes of it in their own um, history here in the United States of America. So Democrats in vain about democracy, while knowing that they're backing the candidate that's most likely to lose, saying we got to do this to protect democracy, voters are going to have to start asking the question, do they care more about winning or do they care more about their party's choice and their coronation here? Yeah. That's true for the Republicans, too. Yeah. And they're having a debate tonight. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie uh, will be fielding questions uh, from our friends at News Nation, uh, owned by our own parent company, Nexstar. So tune into that, and we will definitely be reacting to it on the show tomorrow. More Rising right after this. Republican Speaker of the House Mike Johnson is releasing more January 6th footage, but with a catch. Some of those who were at the Capitol that day will have their faces blurred in order to protect them from retribution from the Justice Department. Here's Johnson explaining his logic. Their own conclusions. We should not, they should not be dictated by some narrative and accept that as fact. So they can review the tapes themselves. Uh, we're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other, uh, you know, concerns and problems. So uh, that's a slow process to get it done. We're working steadily on it. We've hired additional personnel to do that. And uh, all of those tapes ultimately at the end will, will be out so everybody can see them and draw their own conclusions. But apparently that wasn't quite right. According to Johnson spokesman Raj Shah, faces are to be blurred from public viewing room footage to prevent all forms of retaliation against private citizens from any non-governmental actors. The Department of Justice already has access to raw footage from January 6, 2021. As of this moment, just 90 hours of J6 footage has been made public by Johnson. So I, I think he gave people the wrong impression here. Um, so the Department of Justice already has been able to view all this footage. So releasing it to the public, and if they didn't blur the faces, it wouldn't be like the government would suddenly go, oh, we didn't talk to that guy or we didn't arrest that person. They've already gone through all of it. So really what they're trying to prevent is, I think, people getting fired or doxxed if the if, if now it's seen that you were at the Capitol, you know, suffering some kind of actually non-governmental consequence because the government already has all the evidence and all the footage to make you suffer whatever consequences they want. So given that, um, I, I think the blurred faces is reasonable. Um, I, now, obviously, I don't know that these people, people who entered the cap, you know, public grounds that have videotapes, 
that they necessarily have the right to not have that released. Um, and I'm all for more transparency. I think it is important for people, for journalists, for independent commentators to view this footage to get a sense of what really happened, given that like our entire next presidential election might hinge on it, hinge on the actions taken that day, how severe they were, who encouraged them to do it. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it Liz, Liz Cheney said it's very important and it's driving her entire uh, political trajectory. At this her possible point. presidential campaign <laughs> hinges on it. So, and, uh, you know, and I don't trust, we, we don't and shouldn't just trust the government or law enforcement's sure. narrative about it. Um, there is, there's no doubt, I witnessed it with my own eyes, that there was smashing and windows fighting with police officers, property being defaced. There are charges there that I think are perfectly legitimate. It's also the case that we've seen people just kind of walking down the hallways um, with the police, mm -hmm. not fighting with them. Some of the people there probably had no expectation that they were necessarily doing something wrong. And we know that people have been charged, have gotten like 20-year sentences for organizing a mass terrorist event based on what happened there. So it's important to see the footage. That you might argue it's important also, you know, to see the non-blurred images. Um, so I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, I'm a little bit mixed on this. First, first, Robbie, it's so funny. Were you at one? Where were you on January 6th? Has become such a, like a joke punchline <laughs> that every time you say, "Well, I was there, I saw it with my own eyes," there's a part of me. <laughs> goes, Robbie was. I, I had the horns on, and I had the. I was outside the Capitol grounds covering it. I lived I know, near I've there. Been... I decided to venture over. Yes, as as in your professional capacity, you were there. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm mixed on this. Look, I see a lot of liberals. For example, I see um, uh, Ron Filipowski. He's a big uh, online Twitter guy. He's an editor-in-chief at MidasTouch.com, uh, tweeting the implication that, you know, quote, Johnson has to blur their faces because he knows they're all MAGA and wants to keep them from getting arrested. The implication broadly is, you know, you know, you guys know that you behaved wrongly. You know that you behaved illegally, or else why would you be covering up faces? Um, if you weren't guilty, what is there to hide kind of a narrative, which generally speaking, I don't subscribe to. People have rights to privacy, et cetera, outside of kind of this very strict criminal legal context. I do think optically, it, it looks bad. Um, I, the I, whole point of releasing additional uh, footage is because conservatives believe it's exculpatory in some ways. And I think some of the imagery we've already seen, where the cops were escorting people down the hallway, certainly does point to that. But to want something to have that sort of evidentiary value to the public, but to not want to fully disclose every aspect of it does feel like a kind of cherry picking that cuts at the root of what you're trying to do here with this disclosure project. Yeah, I don't know. I've, you know, in my career and capacity as a journalist, um, often writing about activists and things happening on college campuses. Um, at the beginning, I was all about, you know, I'm, I, yes, let's be transparent. People are saying things. People are engaged in activities that I'm criticizing. I'm going to let you know who these people are. And then what would happen in some cases, you know, I, I you know, refer to the, the student activist group leader who's, you know, calling for the speaker to be shut down or is actually, you know, harassing the speaker, trying to get it shut down, throwing things, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. so shutting off the light switches. Um, I'd call them out by name in an article, um, you know, accurate, quoting them accurately. Sometimes I was there covering it, witnessing it. Then there would be, you know, a kind of cancel culture mob against that person. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I was trying to call them out because what, what I think they did is, is bad and is of public interest and happened in public. Mm -hmm. 
but I didn't necessarily want their whole life to be destroyed over it. Mm -hmm. So then sometimes when I was covered, so then over time I started actually redacting people's names, even when I was criticizing them, even when I thought what they did was very blameworthy because I didn't want to be furthering the very problem I was trying to, to, to yeah, grapple it's, with. Yeah, it's tough, it's hard. I do think that the, the, the less public the figure is, yeah. the more justification there is to do something yeah. like blurry And a lot spaces. of these are just random people. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. Right. I get that argument. I, I am very, I'm mixed on this one, I gotta yeah. say. Optically, I think it looks bad for conservatives because what they're trying to say is I'm transparent and look what was hidden from you. So that I, I, I'm pretty firm on. In terms of kind of ethically, what is their responsibility? You know, I, I also understand that perspective as well. I think this is part of what, what someone might say as a response, well, let's watch these videos privately. Why do we have to have these in the public forum as well? But then you have this, you've got this trade-off. Um, and how much more evidentiary value is there going to be in additional videos that are being released? We now know, I mean, I think we always knew, I, I, you know, we always knew that the cops played some role. There were immediate allegations from the left that cops facilitated 1-6, and that was part of the frustrating frustration from the left, that the elected progressives voted for more uh, Capitol Police funding in the wake of 1-6. So this, that's not exactly new either, but I understand that a lot of people apparently didn't see that, they didn't watch the 1-6 hearings, whatever, um, and they found that to be useful for Republicans to disclose. And maybe there's some more stuff like that, fine. But you are gonna have to contend with the backlash of what the implications are of blurring people's faces. If I were doing a story, let's say, on something that I do kind of substantively support, which is, um, you know, pro-Palestine protest, and I chose footage where I selected, you know, was blurring out the faces of the people in the protest, what would that look like from my perspective, as opposed to picking a crowd shot mm -hmm. or picking a shot that had um, a leader of the group who was speaking in front of the crowd who has already put themselves forward as a, a vaguely public figure? I don't know. I'd have to wrestle with that. When I've covered um, left-wing protests that have had some... Uh, criminality component where, you know, storefront windows get smashed or something. It's happened in D.C., Black Lives Matter um, type stuff during the pandemic. Um, most of those people did, they would cloak their face. Yeah, they would cover I mean, their faces and yeah. they would have uh, black umbrellas. To yeah. try, you know, they knew you were media following them around. I had umbrellas stuck in my face a couple times. So mm -hmm. They understand the value of keeping, of not even needing your face to be blurred, yeah. um, which is something that people that went into the Capitol, although I, maybe some, some right-wing people do, um, also, I mean, the very right, the you know, right wing um, kind of alt right people. When they've done demonstrations, sometimes they do shield their whole faces too. That reminds me of a story that perhaps we should cover, where they're trying to ban the wearing of face masks in Atlanta, and I'd be very interested to hear what your libertarian take ban is on that Ban them for COVID one. reasons, but not for no, not ban them. Just don't require them. Just joking. Exactly. It just shouldn't be required. Not banned. More rising right after this. We've got breaking news. Kevin McCarthy is retiring, will leave Congress at the end of the year. He shared this in a Wall Street Journal op-ed published just now. McCarthy has served in Congress for 17 years. Let's watch some of his parting announcement. Time to pursue my passion in a new arena. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much.
All right. So in his op-ed, the failed Speaker of the House writes, I have decided to depart the House at the end of this year to serve America in new ways. I know my work is only getting started. I will continue to recruit our country's best and brightest to run for elected office. The Republican Party is expanding every day, and I'm committed to lending my experience to support the next generation of leaders. Okay. What a journey Kevin McCarthy has been on this year. Gone but not forgotten. Look, you know I'm going to say it. I have to say it. This all started in January when Republicans, uh, the Freedom Caucus, decided to try to pull a force-the-vote maneuver and say, let's use the narrow margins in the House to see what we can extract for our coalition. It was successful. They held up the vote for speakership for not an unprecedented number of times. I think there was an, a moment about 100 years ago where they had gone even longer. Um, but for over a dozen rounds, they kept them on the fence until they got some meaningful concessions for their, for their faction. When progressives <laughs> were being pushed to do this exact same thing two years before, the argument was, we can't do this to Pelosi, we might end up with Kevin McCarthy. And what sweet irony that doing this to Kevin McCarthy actually resulted in ousting someone who was perceived by this faction as being antithetical to their interests and to the interests of Republicans and getting an opportunity to get someone in that slot who obviously I don't agree with, but who is more amenable to their particular constituents' concerns. Yeah. They wanted, Matt Gates wanted to, wanted leadership to actually listen to Republican primary voters um, who had a different, very different view on funding Ukraine, for instance, than leadership had. And when, when McCarthy did eventually, did finally claim the gavel um, some months ago, it was under the condition that he actually uphold these promises to the voters. And they held him accountable when it went awry. And so then he was, so it's not surprising, I think, that he's leaving Congress. He, he's being... He was shown the door from leadership. Uh, he could have stayed on as a member, but it's probably a little demoralizing to yeah. just continue as a regular member, as your as as the you know your the leader of the Republican Party within the House is someone else now. He'll also have you know we should obviously acknowledge has tons of opportunity to make uh, boatloads of money doing lobbying or any kind of post Congress yeah. future, which I have no doubt um, he will be involved in. And I'm sure there'll be a book. Look, how much do you think the um, that whole kerfuffle about him being accused of shoving uh, that other representative? Do you remember that story from about two weeks oh, ago? Oh, he shoved Tim Burchett. Yes, yes. Yeah. How much do you think uh, that debacle, the humiliation of that, the— um, Did there anything come of that? Was there going to be an ethics— be an inquiry? Matt, Matt Gates said there should be an in investigation of It just kind. feels like it's been a very bad year uh, for Kevin McCarthy, not just with the speaker vote situation. He's had a— Bad. He's had a bad year. Yeah, I mean, so it, it looks like, you know, there'll be a uh, special election uh, at some point uh, to fill his seat. Uh, he obviously is a California Congress member. I don't actually know how close, uh, how, how red his district is or whether or not there's any risk uh, to it being taken, the seat being taken so. by a Democrat. But I don't, I, I don't think that he would do this. You know, it's that funny, really you know, we're, we're talking about obviously what happened to him in the last several months. You know, this is this has been a important leader of the Republican Party, mm -hmm. one of its foremost members for a long time, even before he was speaker. And, you know, we don't he's he's a Republican, he's a conservative, he supported Trump at some key times. We're not talking about his philosophy, his like what are what is his what has been his contribution to the ideological project of conservative republicanism? 
It's hard to say. He's not, he's not someone who conveys a lot of um, th that's, that's what matters, or that's what it was all about, ideas, building some movement or some, some coalition based on an ideological project. It, it, it seemed, I think it comes across to a lot of, to a lot of Republicans, frankly, as, um, as it was about he wanted the office and he wanted the power. Yeah, look, I'm looking at uh, ballot ballot Balladopedia ranks uh, his key votes over the last two years. And perhaps unsurprising for any Republican congressman, it's just a long string of nays, obviously voting against the American Rescue Plan, voting against the Inflation Reduction Act, voting against um, um, Marijuana Equity Act, uh, voting against uh, the For the People Voting Rights Act, voting against everything except for defense funding. Mm. Um, voting against the Equality Act, Respect for Marriage Act, the CHIPS Act. Um, and so it is difficult to say what someone's legacy is or to have a good sense of what their legacy is when so much of the role they played was oppositional. And I don't think this is just a Kevin McCarthy problem. I think it's a broader Republican Party problem, especially establishment Republicans. What is the affirmative vision that you're offering the world, as opposed to just criticizing what Democrats and Biden are sure, doing? Sure. I mean, thwarting what is in, in the Republican or in the conservative view, excessive or needless government spending or government growth can, in fact, be a signature achievement or an ideological position. Um, I would agree with a lot of those votes, disagree with other votes that he's taken. Um, but I, I hear you on, you know, not having an affirmative vision for the country, which is where conservatives seem to fail to persuade um, their fellow Americans. We should read statement from Representative Matt Gates responding to McCarthy's announcement. He writes on X, McLeaven. <laughs> Good one, Matt. Yeah, I mean, to your last there's point— There's no love lost here. There's no love lost. I also think this is an issue that's maybe impacting the Republican presidential candidate's inability to get ahead. One way to get ahead, obviously, is to argue, you know, in a traditional context, attack the leader, attack Trump. That doesn't seem to have been successful for anybody. I understand why they're not doing it. But there is this other option, which is to say, present an alternative plan. What are you going to offer that Trump isn't going to offer? Can you say that you have an agenda for America that's better than Trump's? Trump has been saying, for example, that he wants to um, undo Obamacare. That is not a popular plan, and, it, and he chose not to do that when he actually was president, I think, because there was so much public backlash around it. But Obamacare is also unpopular on its own. The problem is there's no alternative. Are you a Republican who can finally come up with an alternative for Obamacare instead of just inveighing against it like Donald Trump? I'd like to see that. Maybe that would start to move numbers. Maybe not. But I do think there is a broader um, kind of holistic problem with the Republican Party where if you're only playing against the guy that's in office right now, do you lose a lot of credibility and steam when you actually are the dog that catches the tire and you have to lead? Well, and very often it's not a principled opposition to spending or government growth sure. when they easily cough up, you know, with your few exceptions, your Masseys, your Pauls, et cetera, easily cough up the funding for, um, for whatever the foreign project is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, w I wanted to note this earlier, but I saw that DeSantis—do uh, you see this reporting that DeSantis is privately conceding that there's absolutely no yes, way I did to beat that. Trump and that um, he, he maybe shouldn't have done this run after all? Right, I found that this wasn't his, his time. Look, he can still hang in there and hope that something happens with one of Trump's indictments that clears the path for him, but yeah, doing it the traditional way doesn't seem to be working. But still hold up hope for that. More rising right after this.
Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will no longer attend a scheduled virtual classified briefing where he was set to address United States senators due to a last-minute matter, according to Senator Chuck Schumer. Zelensky also did not appear virtually at the House briefing, lawmakers say. This comes after Zelensky was set to address U.S. senators in a classified briefing via secure video conference to discuss the ongoing war in Ukraine and advocate for additional military aid. Senator, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced this briefing a day before a Senate vote on a $106 billion emergency foreign aid package, which includes over $61 billion designated for Ukraine. Schumer emphasized the importance of senators attending the briefing to hear directly from Zelensky about the critical nature of the upcoming vote. Zelensky had previously warned senators in a closed-door meeting in September about the potential consequences for Ukraine without increased U.S. aid. Meanwhile, the aid package faces delays due to disagreements between the parties regarding the inclusion of immigration and asylum policy reforms aimed at reducing migrant flows across the U.S.-Mexico border. Tucker Carlson recently discussed the Biden administration's war spending on his Twitter show. Let's watch. Biden's budget director, the head of the OMB, sent a letter yesterday to Speaker Mike Johnson imploring him to spend more money in Ukraine. And what they said is they want to revitalize our defense industrial base. It's, uh, that's the new acronym, DIB, for the MIC, the Military Industrial Complex. And they sent a list of states that would get money when we spend, uh, you know, money on deadly munitions because they have to be manufactured in Alabama or Ohio or Texas. And so, you know, they're saying the quiet part out loud that congressmen tend to vote for this stuff because a lot of this federal spending that goes to Ukraine is actually laundered back to the military industrial complex. And in some ways, not very efficiently, but in some ways it enriches people in yes. their districts and the stockholders, some of whom are congressmen. I, you sort of, wow, that's all so grotesque, but it's also straightforward. You know, people are getting rich, so let's do it. Okay, that's an argument. It's an immoral argument, but it is one. But that's not the argument they're making in public. They're saying we have a moral obligation. You're a bad person. You just heard the National Security Advisor say that you're a bad person if you're against this. But no one ever mentions that we have abetted the killing of an entire generation of Ukrainian men that will not be replaced. Tucker Carlson wrote on X, how could Washington possibly send tens of billions more to sleazy oligarchs in Ukraine now that the whole enterprise has been revealed as a fruitless, corrupt, and incredibly destructive disaster? Because that's what they always do. Uh, very eloquently explained there by Thomas Massey, who's been on fire lately. Absolutely. Um, you know, pointing out that, you know, some... It's, it's being presented to Congress as a general, as almost like an improve the economy plan. And it is true when you move money from when you like, you know, raise taxes to pay for something, and then the, the product is is going to be manufactured. You do like make things better for. He's saying that it, like inefficiently for a couple people, for the people who manufacture those weapons. But that's basically just a wealth transfer from the people to specific firms. And. I guess you could say that's a positive side effect if the spending in question is, is really necessary or really important. But of course, what we're calling to attention here is that it doesn't feel very necessary, doesn't feel likely to work. Ukraine is in the position it's in. Um, everyone is starting to gradually acknowledge that this is not a winnable war. It's at a stalemate, but Russia occupies the territory in question. It occupies the territory that it meant to, um, to wrench 
yeah. out of Ukrainian control. I don't think this is ideal. I don't think in an ideal world, Vladimir Putin's government is, is great or should exist, but I can't snap my fingers and make the world magically um, suddenly conform to our unrealistic expectations. We have to deal with it as it is. And as it is, it does not seem like Ukraine can possibly win this war. It seems, in fact, that our U.S. intelligence knew with relative certainty that they would not be winning this war from the get-go, yeah. from the beginning. And we've been getting more reporting about that recently. We now have—we covered this about a week or so ago, um, that a top Ukrainian official and now also Germany's former leader have admitted that Russia wanted to sign this peace deal with Ukraine like a month after the uh, invasion first happened in March of 2022. But it was these uh, NATO countries, the, the United States and the U.K. specifically, that sabotaged that deal. I mean, and also a couple of weeks ago, I think we covered this as well, there was this argument that was made, I think, in response to how the public was not supportive of additional foreign aid dollars going out, out the door, that, hey, don't worry about this, Americans. This is actually not money going out the door. It's going to inert your benefit. It's coming back to America. They were trying to sell the idea of the military-industrial complex as a positive job enrichment plan that Americans should be happy about. But you have to start asking the question, if we're going to do that kind of socialism, if we're going to kind of do a, a spending plan just to have Americans work and have jobs, do we really want to design it so that they are manufacturing weapons of mass, uh, of mass killing to be sent to be used, and in some cases, as, as being argued in Israel, in a way that violates international law, or do we want to put people to work doing things that actually benefit our American community and don't earn us more enemies all across the world? Yeah, this is kind of going to like a fundamental economic, like the the broken windows idea under what Keynesianism, mm. where this, the economists say, oh, you know, a broken window is a good thing because then you pay the window repairman to fix it, and then he has a little bit more more money in his pocket, and he spends it on groceries, and then the grocer has a little bit more money in his pocket. Okay, but if the window is just not broken to begin with, the person whose window it is has a little bit more money to do those same things, mm -hmm. to like, you know, to 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 improve the, you know, to fix his door or to, you know. Uh, uh, buy his kid a bike, and then the person who sells the bike has a little bit more money, and they can do like it happens anyway. The, yeah. That's the economy. I mean, if the economy is totally dead, you need to you know kickstart it. That's yeah. a different matter. But just spending. I mean, if that were true, then we should like blow up all our bridges, and then we could pay, right. we pay the re the bridge repairman to fix them. Obviously, that doesn't make any sense. People have the money. You're just you're just moving it in different ways, and you're not creating more of it. I think your analogy makes a really important point about how many kind of social consequences, community consequences, um, externalities aren't always captured by these kind of yeah. formalized economic arguments. There are people who live in these houses who have safety concerns, who don't want to be cold in the winter, whose kids don't want to be cut by the glass on the floor. I mean, this is obviously just yeah. an, a, a strained analogy. But when you have people making, doing the decision-making who are on the very far abstracted side of that equation, trying to tally numbers about who, what, what window sales are going to happen this year, then you lose sight of the community-level effects. And I also want to say that Massey's point about corporate corruption and corruption in Congress shouldn't be passed over. Mm -hmm. The number of Congress members who personally benefit from defense uh, stocks, the fact that the media breathlessly reported on the rise in stock value among uh, uh, people who own defense contractor stock as soon as both the Ukraine-Russia uh, war broke out and the escalation in uh, Israel-Palestine uh, broke out 
it's a craven admission of how backward our society is. I mean, when uh, Joe Biden was picking his uh, cabinet and picked a former Raytheon board member as a secretary of defense, many of us on the left rung alarm bells. What do we think Lloyd Austin is going to do? What do we think his incentives are going to be? Is he exactly one of those pencil pushers that we were talking about in your analogy, who's looking at these high-level um, numbers on a page instead of thinking about how this is going to impact people's lives? And I would remind folks that in response to that critique from the left, a lot of liberals said, you're only criticizing him because he's black. <laughs> so this is the world that we live in. One of my favorite um, economic uh, pieces of writing is Frederick Bastiat's uh, The Candlemaker's Petition, which they, he creates this fictional scenario where uh, candlemakers lobby the French government, um, he was writing in the 19th century, to blot out the sun, mm. because that would be the, the best job creation program yeah. for the candlemakers. Um, always great to see Thomas Massey on with, uh, with uh, on in conservative media talking to Tucker Carlson. Uh, very interesting conversation there. More rising right after this. Will we finally reach UFO transparency after all? Well, at this rate, maybe not. According to reports, Republicans in Congress are attempting to block the Senate's bipartisan measure aimed at increasing transparency, quote, around what the government does and does not know about unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. Representatives Mike Turner and Mike Rogers are reportedly leading efforts to, quote, prevent any meaningful version of this provision from being added to the National Defense Authorization Act. Senator Chuck Schumer came for Republicans for blocking the Disclosure Act. House Republicans are also attempting to kill another common-sense bipartisan measure passed by the Senate, which, which I was proud to co-sponsor with Senator Rounds as the lead sponsor, to increase transparency around what the government does and does not know about unidentified aerial phenomena. Unidentified aerial phenomena generate intense curiosity for many Americans. And the risk for confusion and misinformation is high if the government isn't willing to be transparent. The measure I championed with Senator Rounds would create a board, just like we did with the JFK assassination records, to work through the declassification of many government records on UAPs. This model's been a terrific success for decades. It should be used again with UAPs, but once again, House Republicans are ready to kill this bipartisan provision. Schumer wrote on X on Monday, House Republicans are trying to kill the Senate's bipartisan measure to increase transparency around UAPs. The measure I'm championing with Senator Rounds would create a board to work through the declassification of government records on UAPs. We'll keep working to get this done. Joining us now to weigh in is opinion contributor at The Hill and former United States government analyst Marek von Rittenkampf. Welcome back, Marek. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Now, is it wrong to see these efforts to obstruct increased transparency around UAPs as potentially evidence that there really is something being hidden? That is the million-dollar question. I think a lot of people who follow this closely um, think that. Um, certainly, right, if there's nothing to see here, um, why would there be such fierce obstruction to the point where the Senate Majority Leader publicly calls out House Republicans on this? Um, there's been a lot of speculation um, based on where and what districts those two congressmen um, represent. Uh, there's, there's some connections there that are interesting, but look, bottom line, after speaking to some sources last night, um, it sounds like there's actually an opportunity here for Congressman Rogers and Turner to step up to the plate. And it sounds like their legislative staffs may have not have been briefed on 
um, the potential ramifications uh, of um, this legislation not being passed as it is written. My sources were a little bit cryptic about that, but I think we can point to the language in the legislation that really hints at the potential for um, catastrophic disclosure. And, and that in particular relates to um, language surrounding uh, uh, national security surprise. And, and I'll, I'll get into that in a little bit, but I, I'll start there. It sounds like there's an opportunity for Congressman Rogers uh, and Turner to step up to the plate. Well, there's certainly other Republicans who have taken a significant interest in UAPs and um, making transparent what the government may or may not know, including um, Representatives uh, Tim Burchett, um, Anna Polina Luna, and others. So, I, you know, there's a, a bit of a split here, um, I, I think, in the GOP um, side. Do you, do you see, uh, you know, any evidence that are, are, is, has Burchett been <laughs> hollering about this? I can imagine you might have been. So, so he has, there's a little bit of um, complexity here because uh, Burchett has introduced his own amendment. It's a page and a half. Um, and in my opinion, it is riddled with loopholes that will allow um, a government that may have been hiding information to continue hiding that information. So there's been a, a bit of a back and forth between the page and a half that Burchett um, has submitted and, and was included in the House version and the 64 pages in the Schumer rounds bill. And I want to really emphasize that the Schumer bill, uh, or amendment rather, is fiercely bipartisan. It has three Republicans and three Democrats um, co-sponsoring it. Um, and that is a much more robust piece of legislation. Um, it really, really outlines uh, a very broad and, and nuanced process to get all government records, and I wanna be very specific, all government records, and that's backed by subpoena authority, um, to a review panel um, and then to eventually to be disclosed. So very different from between these two pieces of legislation. Burchett, again, many loopholes. It focuses only on publicly known sightings and they only, uh, the Burchett Amendment only uh, requires the De Department of Defense actually to um, release records, whereas Schumer is much more broad and it covers the entire government. Mm. Mark, you alluded uh, earlier to there being some connection between the districts of the two uh, oppositional Congress members and some incentives there that might explain their behavior. Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So um, Congressman Turner represents, is from Ohio, and he represents a district um, that uh, it hosts or includes Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which uh, anybody who's followed UFO history and UFO lore um, knows that it, that is allegedly a site of um, significant activity. And we know it is because Project Blue Book, which was the government's UFO um, debunking effort, is really what it was, was based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And there are also um, apparently some defense contractors that are in and around uh, that area and, is, and also uh, potentially connected to um, Congressman um, Rogers in, in Alabama. So a lot of interesting elements there, but I, I just want to reemphasize um, that there appears to be an opportunity here for, for those two, the staffs from those two uh, members of Congress really to engage with the architects uh, and the authors of, of the Senate and the Schumer rounds bill to potentially move that forward in a, in a successful way.
Are we any closer to identifying where the UAPs are being kept and just like, let's raid the facility at this point? I, I'm, I'm so sick of, you know, sitting around and waiting for another hearing or another disclosure that's not really going to disclose anything because the government, you know, wouldn't wouldn't open up its doors even if I, so I, maybe we disagree on that. I think even if, I, I'm not saying they're not hiding anything. I think even if they weren't hiding anything, they would make this as difficult as possible because that's the nature of government bureaucracies. They very well might be hiding something and I'm just like sick of even, I, let's, let's raid the facility. Where is it? Right. Tell me where it is. Let's do a one six. No, I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> I'll do it right now. Bobby, I wouldn't recommend that for your own personal health or safety. Um, but but I, I look, I um, I certainly empathize with your frustration. I've 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 seen it, uh, and I share that frustration. Um, but I, I just want to reemphasize that um, the Schumer bill is absolutely explicitly designed to do that. And I want to quickly there, there's a um, a comment that Senator Rounds, Republican, who co-sponsored the Schumer Rounds legislation, made, and it's it, it it's flown under the cover, but it. Um, uh, Congressman, or pardon me, Congressional Reporter Matt Laszlo caught this, and Rounds said, uh, and I'm tr I'll try to get you know the, the 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 exact words, but something to the effect of, "We have received buy-in from the various entities, and I'm assuming that's the various government agencies that need to play ball, necessarily play ball for this amendment to uh, work as designed." And we've we've. Round said, again, something to the effect of we got their buy-in or we've worked on getting them all on the same page so that they are, that this is not a surprise to them. So for what it's worth, um, again, I share your frustration, um, but for what it's worth, it sounds like um, from, from my read of that legislation and from, from the other bits and pieces that I'm putting together, um, it sounds like this is, if you want transparency, this bill is something that you, along with Senator Schumer, should be supporting. All right, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. You got to come back and keep us updated. Thanks so much, guys. Sparks flew at a contentious hearing on Capitol Hill yesterday as former female athlete Riley Gaines sparred with various Democratic members of Congress over the issue of trans athletes competing against biological women. Now, one clip that went viral saw Gaines arguing with Florida Congresswoman Summer Lee. Such as teamwork and goal setting. In terms of mental health, studies show that participating in youth sports is associated with lower rates of anxiety and depression, lower amounts of stress, higher self-esteem and confidence. Women must stop. Inclusion cannot be prioritized over safety and fairness. And Ranking Member Lee, if my testi testimony makes me transphobic, then I believe your opening monologue makes you a misogynist. Thank you. Later during the hearing, Representative Jasmine Crockett referred to her home state of Texas and also Florida as deplorable, accusing a witness from the Heritage Foundation of pushing bills that put the country on the wrong track. Organization, the Heritage Foundation loves Texas. Ooh, they love Texas. They always sending us some nonsense bills um, that somehow set this country on the wrong trajectory. They send them to Texas. They send them to Florida. Every deplorable state that we can think about, they usually come in out of y'all's think tank. The Democrat called witnesses, uh, National Women's Law Center President Fatima Goss Graves, argued sports were essential for fostering a sense of belonging for trans students. And success in school sports depends on a whole range of factors, including how hard you work and coaching and access to really good resources and facilities. And trans students participate in sports for the same reason as their kids because it is fun, 
because it creates belonging and community, because it teaches so much about persistence and leadership and, and discipline, unless they learn to lose gracefully, hopefully. And often they learn to win with dignity, hopefully. Yeah, look, I, t I take her point that sports are a very valuable um, social um, teamwork building um, experience for a lot of young people. Um, it makes school and life more enjoyable for a lot of young people. Um, I would never say that I wanted trans people to be excluded from sports. Um, they should be, they should be, no, they should be included. Um, the question is how to do that in a way that's fair to the other players. And, and, and yes, while it's fun and social, it is all, it is also a competition. And particularly later in high school, um, it, it can matter a lot for for college and for the future. So it has to be, you know, fair to the women who are competing against transgender individuals. And we, you know, we've seen now plenty of cases where I don't think it's fair. So come up with some accommodation. You can have, uh, if there are enough trans people in the sport, you, mean you can have a trans separate league or something like that. Um, I, I'm open to other suggestions. Um, we just want to make sure we're not erasing the category of women's sports because the competition is clearly unfair to them on some level in many cases. Yeah, I, I do think that, again, for the overall majority of student athletes in the United States, the competitive disadvantage argument is kind of a non-starter. I think that that last... Um, Witness is right that most people are paying sports and playing sports not at an especially competitive level. I certainly wasn't when I was on my varsity basketball team, varsity soccer team, angling for um, scholarships and the like. There are people who are, but most people are not. So I would like to just put make that acknowledgement and kind of put the, the bulk of it to the side, which is that most people are playing sports to learn these kind of valuable life lessons, to have camaraderie, to have fun, to be students in a school. Now, what to do about making the kind of more professionalized or lucrative aspects of competitive sports equitable, I think is a reasonable question. And it's one that the highest level of um, uh, 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 whatever, sportsmanship in the, in the Olympics has contended with. Now, if you want to specifically get into whether or not you think that they've managed that correctly, I think that's for people with a lot more medical expertise than either of us to uh, interrogate. But they have metrics that they've come up with that are based on whether or not the person has been on hormones for a sufficient amount of time, has hormone levels that are commensurate with the gender that they um, ascribe to now and the gender with whom they are competing and all of these other kinds of things to try to make it equitable. And I think that gets to two things. One, like the raw kind of physical equity of it, but two, also this idea that I think is in a lot of people's minds that a, a significant number of people who are not actually trans but are cis men trying to exploit the system will are, are gonna be willing to do exactly that. Now, if you have to be on hormones for months and years of your life and have the physical consequences of that and the expenses associated with that. I mean, when you look at it that way, I do think that in practice, very few people, I'm not gonna say no one, but very few people would be willing to go that far for a competitive advantage in a scholarship kind of scenario or even in a very high Olympic level. I mean, if there's a, if there's a, an amount, of, a length of time and amount of hormones being taken where the advantage of having been born biologically male is sufficiently mitigated, I think that would be one thing. Um, but, but what we're seeing in, in a lot of the college and high school cases are people who still clearly 
physically, from a strength perspective, um, it may have transitioned to some degree, but clearly are retaining a massive advantage in swimming or running or wrestling. Um, I mean, it, 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 just biological reality that um, that even men, if male athletes who would not be, who are not very, who are not at the elite level, not very competitive with other males. Are, are frankly still would be. I mean, Riley Gaines has said this before uh, when when she testified that her uh, her husband, I believe, or her boyfriend, I think it's her husband now, said what he, that he was also a swimmer and for it within males was not was not an exceptional swimmer at all. But he and and she was you know very, she was much more among female swimmers. She mm -hmm. was much more um, elite and had won more. And that he can beat her hands down every time, not even close. And that you know that. To some extent, I think that advantage is still transferred in, in, in the case of seeing. You know, you're right to point out it's not a huge number of people. But if there's, but if there's a couple um, exceptional trans individuals, you know, in every, in every sport, I mean, they're going to be the ones winning the trophy. And it's not just about obviously the scholarship part matters too. But you know, it's so it's not just all fun and games. You can be you can be in between. I'm not, you know, racing or swimming necessarily for for. For college or for scholarship reasons, but you know, still as part of my enrichment as a young person wanting yeah. to win, and it, be, it being still competitive without serious financial or educational stakes, but it's still competitive. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that cuts both ways, right? Because remember that Riley Thomas tied with, um, uh, sorry, Riley Gaines tied with Leah Thomas for fifth place. So yes, there's. It is definitely true that Leah Thomas, who's the trans swimmer in question, was at a much higher level competing against women than she was competing against men. But it's also true that she didn't take the top spot, that there were four cis women that performed better than her and performed better than Riley Gaines. And so I do think that sometimes this gets framed as Riley Gaines was denied her first place or even second place or even third place, or that Riley Gaines, um, you know, she says, I went home without a trophy. She literally tied with Leah Thomas. So it, it, it's not to say that I think if I were I don't know, sixth place, I guess, or it's hard to say in this scenario because it was a tie scenario, but if I would have placed but for a trans woman, would there be questions about the competitive advantage and whether or not I lost something, I lost out on something material, perhaps because of that competitive advantage? I'm not going to sit here and gaslight people out of that reality. I do, though, wonder about whether or not people who are concerned about that are also similarly invested in figuring out how to create an equitable system where either that competitive advantage doesn't exist or there are alter alternative avenues for trans athletes to compete in ways that allow them to have the kind of um, uh, benefits of scholarships and those kinds of things that everybody else gets to, and more importantly, enjoy the joy and camaraderie of sportsmanship as opposed to feeling another level of isolation in a world that is off, all, already often so hostile to trans people. Yeah, I mean, I, you can understand, though, how this, how this sense of, in my view, understandable grievance comes to be that there were like, you know, there, there was five trophies, there was one fifth place trophy, and I think flipped a coin over who got it or something like that, and it went to Leah Thomas, and she's thinking that would have been my trophy if not for, you know, that this is person This is all really about whether or not they, they print out an extra, they buy an extra trophy from the trophy store? Is that no, what all of these congressional hearings are about? it's about whether it was fair to have to hand it over to, again, she her, t takes the point of view that this person had advantages and shouldn't have been able to compete. And, and if the coin flipped that. went the other way, would all be there well in the world? There had to be a coin flip if... 
um, if the standards she's asserting. And if Riley place. Gaines had tied with a cis woman and there had been a coin flip and the cis woman got to take the trophy and not Riley Gaines, would she have been similarly irritated? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think her I mean, that's no. that's why this is so difficult. I do think, look, cards on the table, I do think that there are legitimate concerns about competitive advantage in the mix here. Of course there are. But so much of this argument, I think, has been co-opted by people who, who, who have some other concerns that are more about isolating and stigmatizing trans people. And that's, that's frankly, upsetting a, or, or undermining a more kind of grounded in science and fact and reality argument that could have been ha happening this entire time. And I think that a lot of people who might have been open to the idea that, oh, we should figure out and make sure that sports are fair for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. We sex-segregated sports in the beginning because we wanted cis women to have an opportunity to compete. For it to be competitive. Right. Yeah. And so for that the we should take this seriously. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of people who might be open to that, frankly, are chased away from this argument because they don't want to be in a place where folks are mad, not because they lost a trophy, but because they lost a trophy to a trans person in particular. And I don't mean to cast aspersions on Riley Gaines. I'm not trying to look into her heart and soul. But I think that's part of what's going on here culturally. Well, and but probably there's blowback the other way, which is that uh, uh, people, I mean, I, I certainly want to include, I have no malice towards trans people. I want them to do whatever they want to do and include them in um, life and have the same, you know, access to facilities and things of that nature. Um, it, it's clear, though, like a blowback is being engendered by examples of um, trans people winning in uh, sex, gender segregated sports where normal people go, well, that doesn't seem fair or to me. Or coming in fifth. Well, <laughs> I mean, there are, there are also... There what do you want, a participation there trophy, Robbie? Well, Why is right. fifth place getting a trophy you know anyway? What I'm saying. Um, <laughs> you right. tell us how you feel about it. More rising right after this. Mr. RFK Jr., please come to gate C40, destination Epstein Island. Well, the presidential hopeful revealed during an interview with Fox News' Jesse Waters that he'd been on board Jeffrey Epstein's plane twice, though he denied ever being on the plane alone. Let's watch. You weren't ever on Jeffrey Epstein's jet, were you? Yeah, I was on Jeffrey Epstein's jet two times. I was on it uh, in 1993, and I was on it in... And I went to Florida with my wife and uh, two children to visit my mom over Easter. Um, my my wife had some kind of relationship with Glenn Maxwell, and they offered us a ride to Palm Beach. So I went then, and then on another occasion, I flew again with my family, with I think four of my children, and um, and. Uh, and Mary, my wife, to Rapid City, South Dakota, to go fossil hunting I, uh, for a weekend. And uh, but other, otherwise, I was I was never on his jet alone. I you know I've been very open about this from the beginning. RFK's revelations come on the heels of efforts by Senate Republicans to subpoena flight logs for Epstein's plane. Efforts which have seemingly been stymied by Senate Democrats. Fox News' Hillary Vaughn pressed Senator Dick Durbin about why there were no plans to pursue a subpoena to which Durbin claimed such a motion hadn't been raised by anyone. I know who Epstein was, but I certainly don't know anything about the issue. Well, he was charged with sex trafficking, so why don't you want to know who was utilizing his never private plane? Raised, never been raised by anyone. Well, 
Senator Blackburn has wanted to subpoena them, and there hasn't been a vote in your committee. Not a word to me. Not a word. Video evidence released by Senator Blackburn seems to counter Durbin's claims the senator asked to subpoena the logs last November. I understand you made some statements about the Jeffrey Epstein flight logs. I had not spoken to you one time about this issue. Since we're in the business of issuing subpoenas now, here are a few more that I filed. A subpoena to Jeffrey Epstein's estate to provide the flight logs for his private plane. Given the numerous allegations of human trafficking and sexual abuse surrounding Mr. Epstein. This is terrible optics um, for everyone who seems to be obstructing getting to the root of who was on Jeffrey Epstein's client list. RFK Jr., I mean, the most damning aspect of this, I think, is that like so many other rich, famous, well-connected politicos, he had a relationship, if not with Jeffrey Epstein, then with Jillian Maxwell, who is currently in jail for procuring and facilitating Jeffrey Epstein's sex crimes, getting girls for Jeffrey Epstein to exploit. The, the fact that we have pictures of this woman at Chelsea Clinton's wedding, that we have pictures of her hanging out with Donald Trump, Elon Musk, every rich, powerful, connected, Bill Gates, and that there simultaneously has been so little interest in Congress at finding out more about who was complicit in, in the sex crimes that Epstein um, executed is incredibly damning. And, and the complicity in the Virgin Islands of the actual government yes. post his conviction yes. or, or pleading guilty, whatever he did, for sex crimes initially. Right. Um, maybe you can make excuses for people having associations with him um, well before uh, his activities were brought to federal were brought to law enforcement that happened in the in the aughts in the later aughts i believe now of course we know there are some people like bill gates who continued to have a relationship with him even after which is crazy and I, it sounds like is actually part of bill gates divorce that mm -hmm. um that uh, his ex-wife melinda gates warned him about that and was mm -hmm. very troubled by this ongoing association so i believe when rfk jr i mean it doesn't sound good i agree with you but when rfk jr refers to the relationship his wife had with glenn maxwell i, I believe he means his first previous wife, wife yeah. not his current wife, um, Cheryl right. Hines. Um, yeah, it could be remarkable. It would, FC's just flying around offering free rides to wealthy, fabulous, well-connected political people like, hey, where are you going? I'll give you a lift, in, like in his jet. I mean, it's unthinkable. Um, you know, I mean, we're not at the level of private jet taking. So some of this private jet stuff is also just beyond my comprehension. I, but sure. Wealthy people, are they don't fly like the rest of us. They're, they call up their... The PJ? They're, they call up Epstein, I guess. Yeah, look, I, I, I take all of that fine, but to your point— Is there like a social media? Is it like a, like a like a hinge or Tinder or something for connect yourself with the, with the Epstein plane to get where you're going to go? I, I mean, they make it sound like they can't afford their own provisions. But like the, the to your point, Epstein first was brought up on criminal charges relating to um, sexual abuse of minors in 2006. Yeah. So— that you know, we have been dealing with almost for almost twenty years with uh, with the reality that this is someone who the law has found guilty 
of uh, the, a genre of crime that we broadly consider to be one of the worst things you can do in the world. And yet people have continued to freely associate with him without consequence, have proudly put forward pictures and images of them together without consequence, are inviting them to their children's weddings. I mean, the level of impunity that people act with, I think, is correlated with the, frankly, perhaps the knowledge that they were, they were, they they were never going to be held responsible, that Congress members would do the dance that we just watched them do and, frankly, lie to the press and lie to the camera about whether or not there's been any inquiries into this. P potentially, optically, what it looks like is to provide cover. Now, maybe he's just a really terrible memory yeah. and is in kind of a, a Biden level of, you know, cognitive uh, precarity. But what it looks like is people running cover from one of the most notorious sex abusers of all time, who also happened to have a lot of rich and famous friends. And we know that Democrats are implicated by this. We know that Republicans are implicated by this. Yes. We know that you know, past presidents of both parties, um, other important tech, philanthropic CEO people. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those cases where it's not really partisan because there's a lot of Im implications everywhere, but but so it's because it's not really partisan. They all want to work together right. to shield you right. from whatever the information is. And the idea, what, what do you make of this argument that RFK Jr. seems to be making that because it was a family outing, because I brought my kids with me on the child sex predators plane, yeah. that's evidence that this trip was above board and just a family vacation. Does that? Is that persuasive to you, the difference between him being on the plane with his wife and children versus him being on a solo trip with Epstein? I, I guess he's trying to say that I wasn't there on to participate in. I brought my my own kids, so it wasn't a weird sex thing, is because what people, I guess why you say that. A, but, a, I mean, to me, that's yeah, I, no, one way or another. It doesn't say yeah. that it's impossible to go, to go into a room with these infamous massage rooms right. and have whatever happens. Again, it's well, it's, you know, it's before... Um, it's before broad knowledge of what Epstein was up to. I, I, I'm most suspicious of, uh, most skeptical yeah. of the people who continue to associate with him, even in the wake of the exposure of his heinous crimes. Yeah. But, um, but you know, people should take this into account as they continue to look for answers. Because, again, it's, I think a lot of people who are very interested in uh, uncovering more, you know, Epstein clientless kind of information have put their faith in independent candidates right, in well, general. Let, let RFK Jr. say, you know what? I wrote on that plane before these claims about him came out, but as president, I will absolutely pursue transparency in this yeah. regard. And for and all I know, he has know. said that. I don't know if he said um, that. I think, I think that would be much more of a persuasive argument to me than, you know, my wife and kids were with me, so yeah. it's, a, it's a mulligan. I, I, he, I just, I wonder, he may have been asked about it on some one of the podcasts he's done, whether he would release the client li or to try to obtain it or whatnot. So I guess that's a, I, so I'm, I'm Googling it. I'm, I'm not seeing whether he said it before, but maybe he has. Um, we will continue to follow that and more rising right after this. We're seeing some pushback as the Florida Democratic Party has moved forward with plans to cancel their primaries. The decision drew blowback from Democratic hopefuls Marianne Williamson and Jank Uger, as well as voters concerned with Biden's ability to beat Trump. But the Biden administration seems to be dodging questions about the lack of a primary, as illustrated by White House Press Secretary Jean-Pierre. Let's watch. So does the 
Florida party then effectively canceling the Democratic primary also constitute voter suppression? I can't speak to that. Why not? You have to speak to the campaign or the, 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 the DNC. Does the White House have any thoughts on, on I can't, those I can't, voters being... I, I can't speak to that. Is it I just, this is, you're talking about 2024 election. You're talking about a primary. I'm just not going to speak to that from here. Okay. And this just in, the Young Turks will be hosting Marianne Williamson, Cenk Uger, and Dean Phillips in response to the fourth GOP debate taking place in Alabama. So get those three together for debate. That sounds like a great right. idea. So Good this is a fascinating story. I want to be really clear about what happened in Florida. So apparently under the rules, the Florida Democratic Party can unilaterally decide what names appear on the ballot. So they have decided that only Joe Biden's name is going to appear on the Florida ballot. Florida That's one way obviously to win. Is one, right? Florida's a huge state with an enormous number of electoral votes in contention. The idea that they, and, and, and the, the Florida party, is their response to the complaints has been, well, uh, the rules have been public for a long time. If you had a problem with them, you should have said so. No engagement with the substantive ethics of a state, a major state in the United States of America, saying that we are going to unilaterally decide that the people in the state only have one option. Democracy itself is at stake, Brianna. <laughs> I mean, that's the argument for Joe Biden that yeah. the Democrats are making. They're the reason not to bother putting forth alternative candidates. It's so important. Biden himself has said he's only running because he needs to defeat Donald Trump. Yes. He said that. We covered that in our top of our show today. I mean, Marianne Williamson made exactly that point. She said, quote, what an irony that the party called the Democratic Party, the party that claims to be the champion of democracy, has basically decided that Joe Biden will be the candidate. Now, this is authoritarianism, just as Jenks said, and then goes on to talk about uh, the Cold War, Soviet Union, and her growing up, and how this is exactly the kind of thing that they were warned about. Yeah, there's no way around it. Um, the process has been totally rigged against any potential challengers to Joe Biden, and it makes no sense because we have every reason to believe that if you think it's so important to stop Donald Trump, if you think it's so important to have a good Democrat, that maybe Joe Biden is not the right person for that job. We're seeing it in the poll numbers. We're seeing it in what, what Democratic voters, independent voters, Republican voters think about Joe Biden. They're dissatisfied with the job that he's done. And then in, in, a, in a very, even in a nonpartisan and nonpolitical sense, him specifically, the thing he can't change, his age, is really bothering people. Right. So you'd think you would want to at least game this out, at least make it fair for other candidates and find out, and okay, if he wins, if the Democrats decide they don't want to uh, you know, change horses midstream or whatever, then fine, so be it. Re Republicans are, are having, they're having debates. They're right. having officially sanctioned debates. They wish Donald Trump would participate in them. Donald Trump's trying to not have a real process, but they're, they're having a process. They're making him, um, you know, fight for it. He doesn't have to fight very hard for it because most Republicans are not ready to move on sure. from Donald Trump. But they're at least, they're at least going through the motions of allowing uh, competitors to see if they can make a case that they ought to be the nominee instead of Trump. Yes. Nothing equivalent on the Democratic side is happening and it boggles the mind. I mean, how vulnerable, how weak, how fragile must the Democratic Party be if they're unwilling to even al allow Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips, and Cenk Uger's name be on the ballot? How afraid are they? What, I, I mean, I, with all due respect. Feckless. Cowardly. <laughs> they obviously Let's get out of value <laughs> um, and support the politics of someone like Marianne or Cenk um, much more than Joe Biden. But even that aside, like, how, like, the idea that you and, and, I, and I, I'm like I'm obviously for that reason hopeful that one of them would be successful, but like 
realistically speaking, you're so afraid of someone who's polling so far behind you, a sitting president, someone who's been in Congress since they were like 29 years old. You're so afraid of Marion Williamson and Jake Uger. Uger can't even legally run for president. I don't think, <laughs> I know, I, I think that he should be able to, but he frankly right. is not under the law able to because he was not born in the United States of America. You're so afraid that she won't even let their names yeah. be on the ballot? I mean, maybe he's correct to be afraid. His debate performances in 20, uh, 2020 were not particularly impactfully good. Well, he doesn't good. have to debate. Remember, these are two separate issues. Yeah, right. Donald Trump's not showing up to debates. Nobody, he's a free man. I mean, he no should, one can lasso him and make him show up to the debate. So I, I mean, he ought to. Should. I think they both ought to. I think he should, but, you know, that's not the RNC's... Right. And within the RNC's control. What they can control is what's on the ballot. And so the DNC is saying, okay, fine, hide, hide from them, Joe Biden. Don't debate them, Joe Biden. You know, uh, you do friendly media, yeah. CNN, MSNBC, they're all in your back pocket. Enjoy that. But at this point, you are drawing attention to the vulnerability of your own party. Florida should just, they should print those those uh, butterfly ballots again. We're like, I mean to vote for Jay Cougar. Oops, that's a vote for Joe Biden. Uh, Marianne Williamson, nope, another vote for, for Joe Biden. Just do it. Just do the, the Buchanan thing for the Gore voters. I mean, that's, a it's, it's crazy. Well, one other thing I mentioned is that when Marianne first announced uh, that she was running as a Democrat, there were some on the left who questioned that decision, who said, you ran in 2020, you're not new to this race, you supported Bernie, you saw what happened to him, and he was perhaps the best situated progressive candidate that you're gonna get in a generation. And you saw the coordination of the DNC um, asking all the, um, you know, Barack Obama calling up all the candidates to drop out to consolidate a, a moderate block against him. We referenced earlier in the show Donna Brazil leaking debate questions to Hillary Clinton back in 2016. We've seen all the ways yeah. that it was rigged against him. Why would you want to be a part of a, of a party that is clearly going to be working harder against you than the Republican Party. And this moment does seem to validate some of the concerns that progressives had, that you were never going to get a fair shot within the Democratic Party. And at least now someone like Cornell West, our RFK Jr., are going to be on a ballot in Florida. I mean, assuming that, I don't know about, frankly, um, Cornell West is an uphill battle to get the number of signatures required to get on ballots across the country because he's unaffiliated and doesn't have as much money as RFK Jr. But hypothetically, there's no one keeping them. It's just money and, you know, keeping them off of the ballot in states. And is it was it a good idea for Marianne Williamson to lock herself in to a party mm. that perhaps predictably was going to use these kind of shenanigans to keep her from having a fair shot? Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I understand her thinking. Yeah. And it is important, clearly, to have someone in the Democratic Party who, who is making a case that another um, nominee might be more popular. That's kind of the pitch Dean Phillips is making, yeah. because, frankly, his policies are extremely similar to Joe mm. Biden's. He's just a little—he's he's quite a bit younger, and yep. <laughs> he thinks he might, uh, he might resonate with voters better than, uh, than Joe Biden does. I mean, Joe Biden is also—he's such a known quantity at this point, commodity. Mm -hmm. Everybody— has probably made up their mind about, like, are new people coming into the Biden coalition? I mean, Trump has this problem to an extent, too, because mm. he's, you know, he's the most name recognition on planet Earth. Um, I think most people in America 
actually have negative views. <laughs> they have somewhat negative views of both these people. And maybe they're just not going to vote. Maybe they're just going to be dissatisfied. And we're, we're going to find out who, who lost fewer votes mm. deciding the 2024 election when you could have had robust competition among people that when they learn about this candidate might say, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know about them, but I actually like them. They're actually registering with me. Maybe that's Nikki Haley. Maybe that's Dean Phillips. Maybe that's Vivek Ramaswamy. Maybe that's Marianne Williamson. We don't know. But the, the parties especially the Democratic Party, it has no interest right now in facilitating that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, stick around. We'll have more Rising for you right after this. Campus madness, fireworks on Capitol Hill as presidents from Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania were grilled by lawmakers over anti-Semitism on college campuses. Elise Stefanik posed the same question to the presidents, asking each, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? Watch their response. MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, as harassment if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment, yes. I, I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. Meanwhile, students of the various represented schools joined congressional Republicans in a press conference to attest to some of the things they say their classmates and professors have said to them. Swiftly denounced the incident, and yet our president cannot. Because the glorious October 7th, and you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die, are words said not by Hamas, but by my classmates and professors. And because despite all of this, I am adamant and hopeful that we will not accept, least of all embrace, this horrific new normal on college campuses today. But while the focus of yesterday's hearing was on anti-Semitic incidents on campuses, friend of the show Glenn Greenwald highlighted that there have been a number of anti-Semitic comments that have gotten a lot less attention on various, uh, various protests for Israel. Uh, for example, here in this tweet, he says, should university administrators allow speech of this kind on campus or should they ban all such views and punish any students or student groups expressing them? 
All right, what do you what do you make of this? So I watched uh, some of the hearing. Um, I, there's a lot. There was a lot of I, I saw anger toward the uh, university president's answers, including from the the members of Congress grilling them. So. I, I actually don't have any problem with what they said because they're right. Um, there are broad, there are and should be broad free speech protections given to the students and to the faculty, and you you can make under a uh, now. I mean, the, the the campuses don't have to exactly follow the First Amendment. It's a little bit complicated if it's a private if it's a public university it does if it's a private university maybe it does because it gets funding in, in any respect they've promised to follow free speech principles so they're they've, they've said they're committed to doing it so they should be held responsible for that commitment given that they take money from the students to attend so you, you can say really hateful anti-semitic even genocidal things and if it's aimed at a at a frankly a broad enough group it will not be considered specific enough to that to be qual to qualify as harassment or a threat. That's just true of statements in general. Mm. I, I mean, I, I could say I'd like to kill or I wish we're dead. You know, you could substitute any group of people, and that would be a protected statement. If I start saying specifically a specific person, Brianna Joy Gray, and here's how I'll do it and at what time, mm -hmm. then it's not protected speech anymore. Mm -hmm. So so they're giving they're outlining something that exists in law and their own policy state. Yeah. Discriminatory harassment is unwelcome and offensive conduct that is based on an individual or group's protected status. Discriminatory harassment may be considered to violate the policy when it's severe or pervasive and objective offensive, creates a work, educational, or living environment that a reasonable person would consider intimidating, hostile, or abusive, or denies them equal participation in the workplace uh, or, or the educational institution. So what? So there, there are arguments there that it's context-specific, and if it's just words said, so just chanting, it's probably protected. If you wrote a statement on someone's you know, blackboard on their dorm room, that would probably be targeted harassment, and it is context-specific. Is, is accurate. It, I, it's, I'm sorry that's so annoyed at least Stevnik, but it's accurate. Now, I, but I will say, I think part of the frustration that is justified is that, I mean, I've covered campus free speech issues incidents for like 15 years now, and I have seen over and over again investigations and suspensions against students and against professors on the mere whim that someone was offended, the mere suggestion Can you give an of. Example? Of well, the, the universities themselves create bias response systems where if someone uh, uses the wrong pronoun for you, there's so many I've covered tons I, I'm of. I'm just cases. asking for an example of someone who's been suspended or expelled because they use the wrong pronoun or said it's something anti-black uh, or anti-Asian or whatever or anti-gay or whatever. The, there was a student who, on his his test, you're supposed to fill in the name of your professor and uh, and wrote the wrong pronoun for the professor and was was given an F assignment for for doing that and and had to appeal it and said, well, I, I don't have Okay, but I just, I just want to be really specific. Well, there, there's an example. Right, but I asked if there's an example. They're talking about whether or not these people should be, you, you mentioned specifically mm -hmm. expulsion, mm -hmm. um, for example. So uh, the, univers I, I the State University of New York gave guidance to professors that they would suffer consequences if they use, continue to use gendered salutations in emails to students. But there haven't been, because you just, I'm sorry, I, I don't mean to step on what I think we made a lot of really good points there, yeah. but you did say, that there were uh, tons of examples of people who have been have suffered these enormous consequences. There was a student at the university. I can't remember the university the put a, uh, a, a, a who uh, put a, a sports sign that was. I mean, I I, I can go back to my archive. No, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't mean to challenge it. But so here's, many. Here's why I'm bringing it up, because 
I haven't been in college for a very long time, but my experience is what the, there was regular open debates about whether black people were intellectually inferior, genetically inferior to white people. A law student that I went to college with named Stephanie Grace famously had an email that she had written to a friend of hers leaked. Um, there were no black people involved in that link. Her friend was white. She's white. Uh, but she had said something to her friend about how she was debating black people's uh, genetic uh, intellectual IQ merits and um, that she would like to believe that she had she adopted a little black kid, that they would be as smart as her little white peers, but she had her doubts and it didn't seem to be panning out. Um, you, you should read her words for herself. But that sparked a whole debate. There were innumerable debates about the legitimacy of black kids on campus my entire, through my entire educational experience. And never once were any of those people censored, held accountable, anything like that, and nor do I think that they should be. It was a horrible experience. When yeah. that, when that um, stu Penn student was standing there, he talked about how he wished he could focus on his exams and get on with his life, but he had to engage with that. I resonate with that feeling because I remember in the middle of exam period being tasked with responding to national media requests over the, the Stephanie Grace story as a part of the Black Law Student Association. So I, I, that resonates with me. But the, the point that I think is really important here is that I think what the university presidents were getting hung up on was the idea that anybody was actually making those genocidal statements to begin with. So I think that some of them jumped—the first the first, professor, uh, the first uh, president said, well, nobody's making those statements in the first place, but here's what our policies are. Fair enough. The next two should have just said that, but instead they basically—what seemed to be happening was they were assuming that by genocidal statements—I um, think that uh, Jews shouldn't exist or, or whatever the genocidal statement was— that the that Stefanik was alluding to statements like from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free, which obviously there's a debate about whether or not that means exterminating all Jews or whether that means from the river to the sea, Palestinians and, and Jewish people, Arabs and Jews should have equal rights under the law, which does not currently exist in Israel. I, I, and so I think that they were saying they were they were wanting to resist validating the idea that those genocidal statements were being made in the first place. And in, in, in the same way that there's that famous example of, if you're asked, why are you beating your wife? Even if you've never beat your wife, that being out there creates a kind of reality that people don't necessarily want to validate. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, there have been a number of—I want to make clear that I do have examples—number of professors uh, we've talked about some of them on the show using the N word in in, lang in English literature discussions or in, in language discussions. There was one professor who used a word I can't in what language that just sounds like uh, it was. Thank you. It was Chinese. Sounds like that word. It, it, it isn't, and he was punished by the institution. It does. Have, Fire yeah. right now has one thousand open cases. So, for so, so let's dig into this. What is the alleged statement? From, this is very important. What is the alleged statement from a student or a faculty member, similar to the very specific example you just gave? Whatever you feel about it, rightly or wrong, you have an example of a statement that was made. Has there been, in any of the reporting that you've looked at, or in the um, testimony that we just saw that young man from Penn give, a specific statement that is attributed to a specific person, maybe a professor, that should uh, be investigated? Because what I noticed, the reason that I wanted to pick that part of the clip was that individual made the following allegation, the following very serious and very specific allegation. He said—I'm sorry, I'm just pulling it up uh, on my—Twitter um, wants to be really slow. He specifically said that both his professors and fellow students have said, quote, 
you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die. Now, I strongly agree that if a professor or a student, but especially a professor, was heard saying, you're a dirty little Jew, you deserve to die, that absolutely there would be professional consequences and there should be professional consequences. Now, before we're reading the student guidelines, the student guidelines and the professor guidelines are two very different things. Professors should absolutely not be teaching at an institution where they are saying something as vile as that. But why is it that there's a congressional hearing where this young man is get, gonna get up and be able to make that kind of an accusation without saying who the professor was? You don't, rem do you remember? What professor so you're saying said you something like that? I'm asking why it is that when we have video that we aren't able to play because we don't have permission to it, but the video that was included in the um, Glenn Greenwald tweet features uh, pro-Israel protesters saying, kill all Palestinians, all of them, not one left from the river to the sea, Palestine will be deceased. We got to wipe them off the face, uh, off the effing map uh, and talk, uh, and I'm talking about flattening them, flattening them like a parking lot. That's, that's evidence. You can do what you want with that evidence. What's you can evidence say someone why? should be sanctioned. Of the of specific statements caught on camera that people have said that you can feel one way or the other about. But I, as I've been reading about the allegations of what's going on in Penn, calling for an infitada. Infitada means resistance. It means rebellion. So absolutely that should be protected speech. I don't understand why that's being characterized as hate speech. Yes, people who are in an occupied territory are going to call for their own liberation and for a revolution. The American Revolution is in hate speech. Apartheid revolution isn't hate speech. The Haitian revolution isn't hate speech. This isn't hate speech. So what are the specific examples that are being put forward? Uh, hate speech is a made-up category. I'm not going to refer to any speech sure, as hate speech. But in violation of school policy. Well, I don't think any of this is policy. in violation of school policy. I don't care. It, the, the statement well, he's describing— you're a dirty little Jew. It definitely is in violation of somebody's Because that's targeted at a specific person. I mean, this is different. A no, specific, no. if I call you that— No, no, no. Then that's what—I mean, that's what the university professors are saying. Right, that, but that's not what that kid was saying. That kid wasn't saying someone's pointed at me and called me he that. Said he said my just, classmates and professors have said things like that. And, like he, that. and he also yeah. said that and that they said glory to what happened on October 7th, which is totally, as I've said multiple times, in keeping with the sentiment of pro-Palestinian activists no, on college it's campuses. Not. It's keeping with the sentiment of people. Today we witness a historic win for the Palestinian resistance, yes. referring to the events of well, October let me, 7th. Let me finish, Robbie. A lot of people made statements like that. Wait, I'm telling you, I'm validating what you're saying. Yes. Give me the space to agree with you, Jesus. On October 7th, October 8th, people were saying things like that. Norm Finkelstein, who has gotten a lot of viral attention right now because of how compelling he is, has talked about how he also, when the facts were not out and it seemed like this was a resistance movement and nobody knew how many civilians had been killed, made statements like that, which Norm Finkelstein, I can't speak for every student on campus, but Norm Finkelstein, who again is the son of Holocaust survivors, um, revised when he realized the gravity of not the legitimate kind of military revolutionary act, but the actual attack on civilians that is in no way validated under international law and cannot be characterized as a revolutionary act. Right, well, I, I would have deleted this statement from my website then if it was just a misunderstanding. But the, but the point I, their, of the matter their is mind this. Had been Sufficiently changed. I don't think they've changed their mind about it. Okay, well, the, the, this is this is an important point. We now have what has happened actually is that students making uh, anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab comments have not gotten the same kind of treatment. We had almost every congresswoman out in front of Congress doing a vigil for the lost uh, Israeli lives. We had the, only, what, the five or six members of the squad at a vigil for the now 15,000 Palestinians have been killed using American bombs in Gaza. You have three Palestinian students literally 
shot. One paralyzed permanently, wait a minute, below the waist as a consequence of anti-Muslim hate, anti-Arab hate, anti-Palestinian hate, and had a six-year-old stabbed to death as a consequence of it. But what Congress is doing is allowing a student to come forward and put forward unsubstantiated. If he can substantiate it, God, please, I hope he does, because no professor should be allowed to make those kind of statements in my view. But making unsubstantiated claims at the same time that Congress is passing legislation that says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. So in a world where the United States Congress, we know they believe that being critical of Israel is the same thing as being anti-Semitic, oh then how can you credit someone who's saying abstractly that people are making anti-Semitic statements when we know that to so many of these people, anti-Semitism means saying anything critical of Israel? I know that, and I... <laughs> I, there's something, <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I'm done with this segment. Fine, whatever, okay. More rising after this. Former President Donald Trump sat down for another interview with Fox News, a town hall, in fact, leading up to the 2024 election, where you won't want to miss what he had to say about President Joe Biden. Democratic voices like Maureen Dowd and, and David Axelrod and Van Jones and others are so critical of Joe Biden. And, of course, he is struggling cognitively. I can't think of, in the last couple of months, any appearance that he has had where he wasn't either mumbling or bumbling or stumbling or having no clue where to go, where to exit. Now, my question is, do you think in 11 months he will be their candidate? I personally don't think he makes it, okay? I haven't said that. I'm saving it for this big town hall. I'd never always... I personally don't think he makes it. I think he's in bad shape physically. Do you remember when he said, I'd like to take him behind the barn? If he took me behind the barn and I went like this, <laughs> I believe he'd fall over. Later, the former president answered to speculation he could become a dictator if reelected. We're promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except Look, what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a that's, drill. That's not no, no. that's not retribution. I got I'm gonna be I'm gonna be, you know, he keeps <laughs> we love this guy. He says, You're not gonna be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border. And we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. So that, I love these interviews where Hannity is always trying to guide Trump like a little, like a like a ferryman down the river, the direction that Hannity wants Trump to go, and Trump just utterly refuses to play ball. You wouldn't be a dictator, would you? Oh, I would absolutely be a dictator. Now, it sounds like there was a bit of a misunderstanding. Hannity wanted Trump to reassure people that he was not going to engage in abject retribution against the, the people who have come for him. And, the, and Trump appeared to say, yes, he would. But then the examples he had of being a dictator was he's going to do executive orders relating to the border and energy stuff, which is not which you I'm sure you oppose, but is, is not yeah. is not the kind of dictatorial political retribution that Hannity was worried yeah, look, about. Hannity's questions give you some sense of where establishment Republicans are at. Uh, presidents don't go after other presidents because the rule is that they're all a big club. None of us are in it and they protect each other at the end of the day. I do wonder sometimes if some of the 
um, frustration about Trump's indictments is because it is a really unprecedented violation of that rule. Now, my argument would be that the rule should be violated a lot more often and that we should be going after presidents and leaders for much more substantive things all the time. Um, but I it agree. is interesting to see that Donald Trump, <laughs> at least rhetorically in that moment, declined to even give Hannity the satisfaction of saying, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to be a dictator in that way. I mean, and, it, right, it speaks to, I mean, I bring this up every time we talk about it, but the, the, the pervasive fear among, really, it's mostly people in the mainstream media and democratic commentary circles. Now we're seeing, you know, I'm seeing article after article in, like, The Atlantic ran a whole issue on the threat of Trump in 2024, mm -hmm. the demagoguery, the, the, the retribution, the idea he will come for mm -hmm. the, the people who are in power now. It's like, okay, but if you, if you even want to step into the shoes of how a Republican or a Trump supporter thinks about this, the way they think about this is that Trump has been subjected to an unprecedented level of retribution himself. We've taken a step never before taken in that he's facing criminal prosecutions in four separate jurisdictions. Um, they, they try to keep him off the ballot. Some groups are trying to do that. Their, go, their elaborate lengths are being taken by, by law enforcement, by activists, by, by um, various figures to thwart Trump, not, not to stop people from voting for him, but to actually make it impossible to even, to, for him to be even voted for, to be, to be a free man. Now, you can say all that is justified and all, it's all correct based on what he has done, but you, you, can't, you, you can't say it's never appropriate for some kind of um, um, action to be taken against government officials, given that they're doing that to him right now. Yeah, I think that's right. But I also think that Donald Trump being the guy who coined the term locker up and having people chant about imprisoning Hillary Clinton as his rallies doesn't have a lot of good faith to go on when he criticizes that kind of action. Now, he, he chose ultimately not to do it. Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe there wasn't anything that they could get uh, to criminally implicate Hillary Clinton. I don't know which one of those things is true. Uh, but. You know, at the very least, rhetorically, Donald Trump doesn't exactly have clean hands here. But to your earlier point about Hannity kind of leading uh, Donald Trump along uh, the primrose path, it is interesting that this is framed as a town hall, because as I understand it, no questions were actually asked from the audience. It felt like more of a Hannity interview in front uh, of a live audience. It was also pre-taped, um, so that also gives you the ability I don't know the extent to which this did or didn't happen, but it gives mm. you the ability to edit um, as well. And this being kind of put forward as counter-programming to the actual Republican debates that are happening tonight, it's interesting to juxtapose the debate, which is supposed to be an opportunity for people to think on their feet, to respond to questions they don't know that are, are coming, although down in Brazil... Uh, 2016, that whole scandal. <laughs> Sometimes the candidates do know the, the questions are coming. Some of the candidates. Some of the candidates. The establishment <laughs> candidates know the questions are coming. But ostensibly, this is supposed to be an opportunity to see how your potential president is going to respond to things on the fly and act in an executive capacity. At a certain point, is Donald Trump undermining his own case by participating in these very staged events that are going to be contrasted with, I think, a lot more ex excitement around the debate t tonight? I mean, theoretically, but it's not having any effect <laughs> on, on yeah. who Republicans want to be their nominee. They want it to be Trump. They love Trump. There's not substantial dissent. I mean, there are, there are plenty of Republicans who think Trump would be not the best candidate to put sure. forth, but they don't feel that way so strongly to 
to for there to be a majority. There's mm -hmm. not a majority. The majority wants wants Trump, and so they're going to get him. And that's where we are. And he doesn't have to show up to um, any debates. He's not going to show up to the debate tonight that's being um, hosted uh, by News Nation, our, our friends at News Nation. Uh, Megyn Kelly's going to be there, his old foe <laughs> from one of the Republican uh, debates in 2016. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, she, it would be great entertainment on TV if he was there, but he feels no need to, 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 you know, fight feud with Nikki Haley and and Ron DeSantis in person. He's you know free free to. He, I don't know that he said that much about Nikki Haley. He said a lot about DeSantis. Obviously, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see if his focus shifts now that Nikki Haley is is becoming more of the dominant non-Trump alternative. Um, there's been some rallying behind her yeah, sure. recently. Yeah, sure. Maybe if she cracks 15 percent. Remember, I got to mention this uh, that. Marianne Williamson just had one of her best poll days, I think maybe the highest she's ranked so far, at 14%. Uh, uh, That's higher than Ron DeSantis is performing, and, and all the other candidates are performing against Trump in the Republican primary. And that is with a complete media back at, a blackout and not a single town hall mainstream interview, uh, sit down one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, Gavin Newsom's gotten more presidential treatment than Marianne Williamson has, and she's still performing better than these other Republican candidates are against Trump. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah, maybe uh, maybe Trump will get together with Don Lemon, and they can talk about how <laughs> Nikki Haley is a little past her prime to be running for president. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll, of course, be reacting to this wonderful debate on News Nation. You won't want to miss it, hosted by our dear friends and sister networker. I don't know what gender the network has. <laughs> I shouldn't assume it. My, my apologies. All right. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Fare thee well. Bye-bye.